0: good 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 evening everybody and it's the weekend happy Sunday to everyone and uh i am uh recovering from yesterday uh from the bourbon that I drank at a derby party <laughs> to, down in d c my wife and I went to a uh the willard hotel in in downtown d c for a Kentucky Derby party because we are we are just huge horse racing fans. And if there's anybody who knows anything about horse racing, of course, who is from Baltimore, um, it's Elizabeth Embry who is my guest tonight. And Elizabeth is County Prince George's County Executive, uh, Richard Baker's lieutenant governor pick. Uh, they are a running she is running as the, the become Maryland's next lieutenant governor. And I want to welcome my guest, Elizabeth. So, hey, Elizabeth, thanks for coming on tonight.
1: Ryan, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. And I was going to say that um, now that we're in the month of May, and that's, of course, historically and annually the the month for horse racing, um, the Pimlico is, is coming up, the big race, Preakness, and I'm sure you've been many times.
1: I have, although not for years.
0: Oh, okay.
1: It's a, great, it's a great event, though, for Baltimore. Really terrific.
0: Yeah, it is a great Excited. event for. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I love racing, and it, but uh, I, yesterday it was raining, and the horses looked like they were struggling. So oh. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what the so, weather
1: prediction is yet. Do you, have you heard?
0: I have no idea. I I know yeah, that it was. It was pretty icky out this week, and uh, yeah. compared to the last couple of weeks, and then. Of course, up in Maryland here, we we suffer from the humidity, but I guess we're used to it, or we should be used to it by now,
1: right? Um,
0: I, mean, I know, right? Um, so, well, thank you so much for for coming on the show, and this is your first time, and I've I've long known about you as um, when you and I first discovered you when you were running for the mayor of Baltimore, and right. you've. Yeah, and what a what an interesting race that was back in 2006. There was like a 150 person primary in that race. Um but you you did a an extraordinary job of talking about issues and sticking to issues that are very important to me as a father of two uh who has public, you know, two children in Montgomery County public schools. Um you you really stood out in that election and you made your pitch um, to the people of Baltimore in a way that I haven't quite seen it before. And so um, that was, that was very unique to me. And then fast forward to two years from now, um, you're on a gubernatorial ticket. So I just want to, I want to dive right. in to your background. I want to talk about you Elizabeth Emery and we're going to talk a little bit about how, You and Richearn got connected and how that conversation went down, because it's always fascinating how a potential governor picks their gubernatorial, their running mate, their lieutenant governor. So um, you are a native of Baltimore. You're Maryland through and through. Is that correct?
1: That is true. Yes. Born and bred in Baltimore City. And I did go away to college and law school, but then came back to Baltimore right after law school. And I've been back ever since. And well, I also just you, want to say Ryan, thank you so much for what you said about the marriage race. I really um yeah, I mean the policy issues we put a lot of effort into and something you know, I really hope was the focus of the campaign. So thank you for saying that. Well, you
0: certainly did. Um and I, I just remembered that you you focused specifically on education. That was a big policy. And we know that Baltimore City has uh it has its ups and downs as any major yeah. American city has, and we can go down the line and say, okay, you know, Philadelphia has its own set of issues, Detroit, um, San Antonio, we go down the line, but with Baltimore city, it's personal. I mean, I grew up in Hagerstown. I'm, I'm originally from Western Maryland. Then I moved around the state a bit and then settled here in Montgomery County. And we're very blessed to be enjoying some of the nation's very best public schools and I know that when you worked in the, in the city of Baltimore, and not just in your legal profession, but when you decided to step in that, that mayoral race, um, you dug deep down and explored the real issues behind um, what's, what's kind of plaguing Baltimore City. And you know, in the wake of the Freddie Gray situation and the police issue and the many education problems that a major, any major city might suffer – um, you went out and put it all on the line, and you really had a conversation. I remember listening to some of your previous interviews that you've done on the radio and with um, some of the other uh, reporters and news media, and uh, I was I was really impressed about how you presented a, a cohesive platform. And one thing about this race is that you, you stayed away from a, attacking other candidates, and it's the type of politics that I'm, I think we're all, we all have grown tired of, is the, the drive-by political attacks.
1: Yeah, one of the things I like about this gubernatorial primary, that is for the most part, it has been, yeah, about each candidate talking about their vision and issues um, and not about attacks, and that's important. A, it just, I think, is a, is a better primary, but it's also important because whoever wins the Democratic nomination needs to be in a strong position for the general election, and so it's not helpful... Um, you know it's just really not helpful to have a primary where everyone's going after each other
0: so i've been really yeah.
1: really happy to see that
0: the primary has been tame i have to say your primary and <laughs> okay. among the democratic candidates has been very tame comparably to some of the other primaries that have taken place throughout the, throughout history in the state of maryland i will i will right. give you credit and one thing that i've noticed about Your running mate, Prince George's County Executive Richeran Baker, is that, and this is a an across the board common characterization of him: is that he is truly a gentleman. He's a true gentleman, and and that is refreshing to see in this crazy world of politics that we're all part of, that we all follow. And you know, as a candidate yourself, and you know, from the the other the back end of, of of politics, the fourth estate of journalism. We always, I always appreciate people that can go in and talk about issues where they disagree, but they're not vindictive, they're not cruel about it. And that's, I think that's what's plaguing our political system as a whole, and that's a grander conversation for another time. But Richard, to me, has always seemed like he is a fundamentally decent human being.
1: Yes, I couldn't agree more and and that's a large part of why I joined this team, because of the 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 person he is. I I I knew and respected him as a leader and someone who was doing great things in Prince George's County with really enormous challenges, but it's who he is as a person that's the reason I believe so deeply in him and have you know, felt so honored to be able to run with him. Yeah. Well he is deeply kind. I mean he's thoughtful. Day in and day out. I mean, it, we're obviously campaigns are stressful, and he is just, you know, constantly thinking of others, and yeah. it's just—it's very impressive and unusual in politics.
0: Well, Elizabeth, you and I aren't too far in age. I am thirty-two, and
1: huh? I'll be—I'll
0: be generous and just say that you're you're in your thirties as well. Um, no, and,
1: I wish, i oh, Ryan. I hate to correct you, but I'm forty-one. Well, <laughs> close, for, close for, to my thirties.
0: <laughs> well, I i will say that. As a 41-year-old, you. you have an incredibly impressive background. You went to Yale. Thank you. Um, And then you graduated from Columbia University, and uh, you got your law degree. Um, I've, I've visited the campus of Yale. Uh, when I was visiting New England for the first time, um, I drove up to Yale, and we saw the campus, and I, I loved it. I, it was just extraordinary. It is emblematic of the classic uh, New England style of architecture. And I've had some other friends who have went to Yale. And when I went over to the campus, Elizabeth, I'm, I'm a huge um, skull and bones. I read so much. I love reading about it. So uh-huh. I literally, I went up to where the, um, the skull and bones is located. It's just you know like on a main street, but it's so funny because they have cameras pointing down at the main entrance of the door.
1: That's right. And,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. So I I went and visited that, and then of course I've also visited Columbia University in New York City. And when you graduated, you went off and, and you practiced law for quite some time, and you worked in the criminal division of the Office of the Maryland Attorney General, and you've also been yeah. a state's attorney in Baltimore. So let's talk about that. Um, Can you walk us through your legal career and how you got involved in the justice system?
1: Happily. So when I was an undergrad, I was actually very focused on housing issues, in part because of my family. My father had been housing commissioner in Baltimore and then um, undersecretary of HUD under President Carter. And so I grew up really being excited about the potential for you know, aggressive and innovative public housing solutions at a time when the federal government was really focused on that. So I came out of um, undergrad and worked in New York City at their Department of Housing, doing um, in the finance division, looking at affordable housing finance. But then in law school, um, I loved trial advocacy, and when I and I wanted to come home to Baltimore, I always wanted to come home, and I cared about policy in the city, and. So I thought that working as a a prosecutor in the the criminal justice system was a chance both to, you know, truly try my hand at trial work, but also learn about a system that was so critical to Baltimore and one that I knew very little about. I, you know, just had not interacted very much with the criminal justice system, even though it affects so many people's lives in the city. So I just became, you know, a law clerk and then a prosecutor in traffic court, the traditional pathway through the office. And it was terrific. And I focused, um, when I got into the felony world on uh, crimes involving victims, so uh, violent crimes. And that was deeply satisfying. It could be very frustrating, very sad, very painful, but ultimately satisfying. And I felt I felt like you know there was a, there was a purpose, but I also felt very sad because the, the problems you see in the criminal justice system are really reflective of all the problems in the systems in our city: educational failures, um, poverty, housing failures. You know, it sort of wind up one way or the other in the criminal justice system, which is you know the worst place to handle these issues. So anyway, so I ended up working. I was asked to come over to the law department in this in City Hall to work on some issues connected to public safety and criminal justice reform, and in that role, I also just it's a wonderful office, and they do everything for the city, from litigation to land use to advising the council, city council. So I just got to do all kinds of things. You know, I just volunteered and said, can I help with this or that? And so I got a tremendous experience learning how city government works and um, then went to work at Dollar, Department of Labor, for the state, and that was in a policy role. Um, while I was doing that and learning about workforce apprenticeship uh, secure I mean, just the, the different pieces of that agency. Um, Greg Bernstein, excuse me, Greg Bernstein, while well, he was running for office and his wife, um, who was running the mayor's office of criminal justice, was going to help work on that campaign. So I was asked to come back to City Hall and run the mayor's office of criminal justice. And we, I won't go deep into that, although it was really interesting. It was the time the Sun had just uncovered um, under serious underreporting of sexual assault by the police department. Um, or classifying them, they were classifying them as unfounded, and so I stepped into leading that audit process, which was um, ultimately successful process, but a lot of a lot of work. Um, and then when Greg Bernstein became state's attorney, he asked me to come and join as a deputy. I worked in that office. We were very successful. And in many ways, but I want to focus on two things. One is focusing on violent crime in partnership, of course, with all the agencies that you work with. And we saw homicides drop under 200, and that was you know an over 40-year low, which was really exciting. And at the same time, arrests had dropped over 50%, and largely arrests around crimes like uh, drug possession, um, crimes that are, that are really about homelessness and poverty. And we also, in addition to the arrest dropping, within district court, we expanded diversion. We, we, along with the courts, helped create a homeless docket, um, mental health court and the circuit court, all these things to try to get cases that really don't belong in the criminal justice system out and into treatment or the right kind of programs um, while focusing really intensively on violent crime and how to do better and felt, you know, we saw some real success along, along those lines. Not Obviously not where we need to be, but significant progress. And then. After Greg Bernstein left, uh, Brian Frost, who I'd long thought the world of, um, he had become attorney general, so I asked if he had, you know, I said, you know, do you have room room for me in your new administration? And he said, you know, would you like to be chief of the criminal division? And that was just a phenomenal opportunity because, you have statewide jurisdiction, and unlike uh, state's attorney's office where you're you're essentially responsible for prosecuting anything that comes in the door – you're the de facto prosecutor for that jurisdiction. At the Attorney General's Office, sort of like the U.S. Attorney's Office, you can choose what, what you want to focus on. And so, um, you know, working with Brian, who had a very clear vision of what he wanted to accomplish, it was really exciting to sort of create that, those priorities, including attacking the opiate epidemic by going after mm-hmm. prescription fraud um, abuses and pill mills and pharmacies and facilities that were essentially acting as drug dealers but with prescription opiates. Um, we also had the first um, human trafficking case that the office had ever done, and we did that right. in conjunction with the uh, Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office, as well as a number of law enforcement entities. And it was this—it was multi-jurisdictional, and the kind of it was the kind of case that the, it, an office like the Attorney General's Office is really well suited to handle because we we were not limited to a single jurisdiction. And I I could talk more environmental crimes, crimes involving um, vulnerable. Adults, group home abuses, all those things. It was really exciting. Um, and, I, and I did take a leave of absence from that job to run for mayor, which was also an adventure, and then returned to that. Um, and I was very happy, but when Roshan reached out and I got to know him, I also I just realized I, it was too important. So I've, um, I've left that job, and I'm full-time campaigning now.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned some of the positions that you've held in, in the state. And, um, you know, you, you, you had you know, been assistant city solicitor. You, was, you were the mm-hmm. special assistant to the Maryland Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation, the acting director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, as well as serving as a felony prosecutor. And, right. I mean, this is all – I mean, this is that's – that's an incredible career. And you and I probably share some very similar ideas about criminal justice reform, um, especially mm-hmm. – as it relates to the Baltimore, especially it relates to many Baltimore City residents and what has happened with our justice system, even at the national level. I remember in the aftermath of the, of the, the very unfortunate situation of Freddie Gray, um, when there was the widespread protest in Baltimore City was, um, when, the, when, when the governor ordered the National Guard to come in, and it was right around this time, uh, three years ago, And I remember that I walked down into the city of Baltimore and, you know, I was covering it on uh, my blog, a minor detail. And I, I really had a lot of meaningful impactful conversations with people (laughs) who lived in that community. And I said, and I just sat down on the, I remember sitting down talking to a mother and she was, and she was on her front porch and I said, Hey, do you mind if I can talk to you? Just, you know, off the record, whatever, and just, let's just have a conversation We ended up sitting there for an hour and she expressed that. And it was really moved me. And I said, tell me what's on your mind and tell me what you make of this entire situation. And she said, I'm just a mom who wants to put my kid through public schools and I'm concerned that he's not going to be able to escape this, this, this cycle. And she said, you know, I don't make a lot of money. Um, and I work two jobs and it was just, it absolutely impacted me so profoundly and uh, this person and I, she and I still stay in touch. We exchange emails. Yeah. She, she calls me um, every once in a while and we just check in on each other. And during that time when things did not seem to be in place, we there were so many open questions. And what happened with Freddie Gray? What happened with the police? Those issues um, affect, uh, uh, this, it, I think it really it deeply affected that city and it's and but those conversations, those tough conversations that we have that we need to have Elizabeth on race, on policing, mm-hmm. on poverty, generational poverty, on education, yep, on failing schools, on what it takes to is it funding our schools? Is it finding the right teachers? Is it making sure that we can pay teachers what you know what they're truly worth? All those conversations and it's not just limited to Baltimore City. This is happening around the country. And I think Having those one on one conversations, even one at a time, is in so vitally important to to how we you know improve the political culture, how we elevate the conversation so um, I you know I applaud you, and I remember when you first was when you first were running for mayor, I was following your campaign very closely, and I was following another guy by the name of David Warnock and um, oh, right. David yeah. yeah, David had some really unique ideas about business and about criminal justice reform. And I sat down and talked to David um, in one of the markets on a Saturday afternoon, and he had walked around and was talking to several folks um, inside of this market. And so I just remember that that particular mayoral race was so important because you really drew out a lot of the policy issues. And that was important. And um, because look, people look at the city of Baltimore as really the hub of Maryland. And I, that's how yeah. I see it. I, mean, how I, you know, we. You go down in the city, you do business there. You see a uh, an Orioles game. You go to a Ravens game. My favorite spot, my very favorite spot inside of the city of Baltimore is mm. Little Italy. My family ah. is uh, so we go to Sabatino's and we go to Vakaro's, Vicar, uh, and we, you know, just spending the day in such a culturally diverse city as Baltimore City. Um, I love it there's so much to offer. We take the kids to the inner harbor and we've you know go to the museums and to the uh, the, the national harbor there um and it's just it, there's some there's some point there's some parts in the city um that have really grown um fells Point I went to um the new restaurant that um kevin um plank had built and expanded mm-hmm. um on the water. What an incredible place i don't know if you've it's you've checked remarkable. that out
1: remarkable. i have I have, yeah. yes. It's remarkable. Yeah. Po-
0: Beautiful. Ex- excellent place. And so fast forward to 2018, there's this gubernatorial race happening, uh, I'm sure you've heard. And uh, <laughs> so I, I'm curious, um, you know, there was talk in the there was there was the political chatter across the state of Maryland that Rashurn was considering you. And then I, um, in fact, I wrote an article about this back uh, I remember. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, <laughs> Valerie Urban said the same thing. She goes, you know what? You wrote that article and then all hell broke loose. And I said, I'm so sorry, <laughs> Valerie. So I, I said, please forgive me. I said, it's just I said it's my job to write these things and she's she's like, No, it's fine. It it's just it just uh it and she goes, It messed up my day a little bit. Um and I said it <laughs> Oh, it's okay. I didn't
1: mind. It was already it was already being talked about, so yeah, yeah. I have no absolutely so, mind at all.
0: So Elizabeth, how did how did that happen? How did the the partnership form? How did the conversation go down? What set the scene for us?
1: Sure. And first, I should say I did not know Richard personally before this process, um, but I knew a lot about him because of the marriage race. Because when I talked about the Mayor being responsible for the school system, I was you know I was looking at what he had done in Prince Georges County when I talked about uh, what he called transforming neighbor, excuse me transforming neighborhoods, but what I was talking about was you know how do you have a strategic plan for the neighborhoods that need it the most that's effective and accountable and you know um, so so I was very well aware of the things he was doing in Prince George's County, but i didn't know him personally, and so when he reached out and i, I didn't know this at the time, but they had already you know they'd been as you would expect, they'd spent, they spent a, a lot of time thinking about uh, running mate, and uh, he had heard about me, and he'd followed the mayor's race, and, uh, and also really liked the, the policy proposals, especially the education plan, because it again echoed a lot of the things that he was doing. Um, so he, they, so he was interested in meeting me, even though they were pretty far along in selecting. A running mate, and then we met in Baltimore. And I was extremely flattered, but I was not remotely contemplating um, statewide office or you know getting involved in the in the race in this kind of way. So um, I walked into it though, just you know very eager to get to know him. And we had this fabulous first meeting; just like clicked. Our brains worked similarly. We were talking about things the same way. We were just excited, and it was a really fantastic first meeting. And at the end of it, I was. Um, and, and we just were talking, and it, was, it wasn't until the end that he said, would you be interested in, you know, really talking more and maybe even joining the ticket? And I don't know what I would have said at the beginning, but certainly by the end I said I would like to keep talking because I was so taken by him, his uh, his passion and sense of urgency, but also he thinks like an executive. He, he's He's outcome-oriented. He's pragmatic. He understands how systems intersect, how... Right, how jobs and intersect with transportation, and intersect with health, and all of that stuff. I just saw the way his brain worked is the way that you know an executive um, thinks about things, and and I could you know it was so clear to me why he was effective in Prince George's, and I could see him how effective he could be as governor. So anyway, we then had you know more conversations. I one of the first things he had me do was come and meet his wife and his family, um, and I talked to people in his administration and life who had been you know who knew him very well and also had been involved in different, different policy initiatives he'd done. And so after, you know, talking to a lot of people and (laughs) a lot of soul searching, I decided with great enthusiasm that I wanted to join. And then it all happened very quickly. And we've been, every day I get to spend with him, I'm even more deeply impressed and um, enjoy. It just, there's, there's just, um, you know, he's so, he's such a good person. And his energy is so terrific. It's it's just a pleasure to campaign with him.
0: Yeah, I see that on stage, especially in many of these forums that he participates. Um, and you talked about sitting down over, over a dinner and having that conversation and the Baltimore sun reported that um, he wanted to learn more about crime reduction ideas um, mm-hmm. for Baltimore. And then the Sun also reported that Monday that within five minutes of sitting down, he was, quote unquote, completely blown away, uh, <laughs> similar styles and how you can yeah. articulate your ideas. And he said that he walked out of the restaurant knowing he wanted you as your running mate. So at that point, does what so what happens in that conversation? Does he pick up the phone and said, Hi, Elizabeth, this is Richard. Um, I <laughs> I would like for you to join the ticket. You have 15 minutes to decide. I will call back <laughs> at eight, at nine o'clock p.m.
1: <laughs> no, we. Let me think back. So the first meeting, one of his, you know, someone who works closely with him, reached out, and it was just a meet. It was, you know, just a meeting, and then, um, but at the end of that meeting, as I said, we talked about, you know, he he mentioned, he said, you know, would you like to, would you think about this, and then, um, yeah, and then we just talked and talked and talked until I finally not finally i mean but i was ready to come and i said i'm absolutely all in if if you want if you're you know if if you want me to join i'm i'm, I'm ready and he said great <laughs> let's do it and so um it was it was that simple and um yeah it was fabulous it was really it was a great process and it was, was really just us getting to know each other
0: and that's I, that's how any relationship forms um and I I think it's I, I always like to find the details behind how the decision is made and what goes into it and how how the meetings go down. And I always love when the when you're watching and waiting for the on the presidential side. I remember back in 2008, I was a senior in college and I remember the Veep watch where they had people stationed out in front of like Joe Biden's oh, right. house. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. they're like, oh, you know. Who's he going to pick? You know, who's Obama going to pick? Or, uh, you know, who's, um, you know, who's Hillary Clinton going to pick? Um, And, you know, I remember when there was a news article about how they had Paul Ryan, when he was picked by Romney in 2012, had to literally dip out the back door of his house. So here I am thinking (laughs) that, you know, here's a WBAL cameraman following you through the back of your house and like tracking you down with a microphone. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not but the
1: it, remotest similar. no not at all not at all <laughs>
0: oh, well um for you them. know i was on lg watch for a minor detail and i keep i kept getting all these different tips and people were emailing me and calling me and say hey you should really check out the campaign finance reports uh for so and so and so i would go in and then put two and two together and <laughs> then little little did you know i'm i'm Guessing correctly that uh, Rich Madalino was going to pick Luanda Jenkins, and then I, I here I am trying, you know, harassing uh, Denizens Brewery and saying, "Oh, did did by the way, did Julie Veretti perhaps accept uh, the L- lieutenant governor's ah! spot under Alec Ross? I saw Julie today a- at the Montgomery County Democratic." <laughs> um, annual brunch. She goes, you know, you call, you call my general manager. And she's like, I got this guy on the phone and I have no idea what I should tell him. And they're like, stall, stall, stall. Don't say anything. Ah, so right. I guess the the biggest thing with picking a Lieutenant governor can, uh, choice as a running mate is keeping the damn thing secret. So, um,
1: it's not easy. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's not not easy.
1: easy.
0: So you, now you're on this ticket and look, by all polling indications, um, the Baker-Embry ticket is doing pretty well, and the the latest Goucher poll um, and several other polls indicate that your team is the that you're the front runners. That you're 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 tackling this gubernatorial primary from a decent position in that you you know, you're, you have the Beltway, um, you're attracting support around the state, but I don't see you taking the race. For granted, of course, because uh, there's right. many candidates running, and I think people have a pretty good idea of how it could turn out. But you never know; it's it's not you a it, it's it's not a foregone conclusion. And I see your team going everywhere, and most importantly, from my perspective, I want to give you credit, um, the the Baker Embry team for having a, a a communicative press operation that helps a lot because people like us. And anybody in the news media, we just like to know what's going on, and you build those relationships. And I've I've found your team extraordinarily functioning and easy to work with, and that's so oh, important.
1: Thank you. I'm definitely yes. going to tell them. Thank you. I love them. Absol-
0: nice Absolutely. Yeah. So let's that's talk great. about what is Reshern and your central theme. What is the central theme of your campaign and for – the state of Maryland. And mind you, you're going up against six other Democratic contenders. And there is, you know, for the first time in a really long time in the history of Maryland, we have a Republican governor. And for based on what the polls say, he's a pretty popular governor. Um, And we, we can talk about the policy on that. But you're you're in a you're well positioned to become the team that takes on Larry Hogan what's the central theme for your campaign
1: and let me say yeah just two things one to echo what you said we are not taking anything for granted in fact I approach every day as if we're in last place and (laughs) desperate to catch up because um, I think you have to campaign that way you should always campaign that way but um, especially in in a crowded field where there are so many undecided voters so we are we are working as hard as we possibly can um That's point one. Point two, just on you you mentioned the recent poll, it was the first time that in a matchup, in a head to head, Hogan was only um, receiving 44 percent of the vote. And up till that poll, everything that I've seen had him, I mean, steadily dropping, but it was the first one that was under 50 percent. So that was good. He's still popular, but it's not a popularity that that is necessarily going to cause Democrats to vote for him um, in November. So that that was that was heartening. Um, so just those two points, and then central theme. I mean, what really sets Rashern apart is that he's that he has that he has experience, and this is I, I always think experience matters. I've spent my life in public service, and so I think it's you can't just step into government without having worked in it in some capacity and expect to you know be able to just immediately start being effective and it's also about relationships he served in the general assembly on appropriations so he he has deep ties deep deep ties within um within annapolis but also statewide i mean it's the fact that chris van holland brian Frost, benny hoyer Ike leggett they've endorsed him because they know him and they've worked with him and so those are really critical um distinguishing points in the primary the fact that he has the experience of leading the second largest county um but also his both in that role but also in the General Assembly, knows how to get things done in Annapolis. So that's, that's one point. Another point is that he has led through crisis. And Maryland is not a crisis point, but we are slipping behind. And it's impossible with Trump in the White House not to be prepared for some really hard decisions and hard fights going forward. And so I think we need a leader now who has faced hard decisions. You know, we came into Prince George's County eight years ago and faced every problem you can imagine from – you know, having to deal with an active FBI investigation. They just indicted the previous county executive, Jack Johnson, um, to sluggish is yeah. a death. Sluggish is generous. Um, you know, economic performance really was, you know, it's a nadir. And the foreclosure crisis had hit uh, Prince George's County harder than anywhere else. There was no real environmental program to speak of. And, um, you know, crime was rising because D.C. was, uh, you know, gentrifying. And so a lot of – people were pushing out um, into the Prince George's County inner beltway part. So he's had to deal with everything and he's done remarkable. He's done a remarkably good job in facing all of those issues. And also a school system that had had constant turnover and superintendents was losing rapidly losing student population. And if you look across any of the metrics, um, whether it's the environment, whether it's job, job growth, whether it's home prices, I mean, it's gone from foreclosure prices to steadily rising Home prices and median income, um, a school system that now has uh, 7,000 more students than when he took office. I mean, it's, it's just he's he has a proven record of dealing with really hard challenges and and facing them aggressively, um, you know, and, and seeing results. And I just to me that's that's what I look for in in a leader. And I think right now Maryland this, we can't afford to slide further backwards, and we can't afford to be silent when it comes to the federal government.
0: You know, education is, I think, on the top list of every statewide candidate, every gubernatorial yeah. candidate, as it should be. I mean, education is has to be the first priority as we're training future leaders that, you know, the heart and soul of our state, the very foundation of who we are is based on how well we can educate our future leaders, citizens. And so um, where would I be without, I mean, I grew up in Washington County so i my my oh. public school system, yeah, okay. so that's
1: hey, you, right. you said, yeah,
0: yeah, so um you know, speaking about the education system and what's been going on in p g county what's what's your take on this this maxwell situation you know he you know of course he he recently stepped down, and um it was um you know it's been ongoing news that uh there quite a few problems had existed. So what's your what's your take on that?
1: Well, my take and part of this is, you know, again, coming from the perspective of Baltimore, where we've seen we've seen, you know, steady loss in student enrollment, um, you know, really, really a, a tough time seeing significant improvements in our school system and so when I look at Prince George's County and I see a county executive that says, I am willing to take this on. I'm going to put in every extra penny I can. I'm going to raise teacher salaries, and I'm going to work, you know, hand-in-hand hand with the school system, make, you know, make the, all of county government work with the school system um, to do the best possible job. I admire that. And Kevin Maxwell was this, you know, phenom from Anne Arundel County, and he comes in and he does terrific things. He, brings, he creates the best arts integration program in the state of Maryland. Creates um, language immersion programs, international high schools, does you know really great work with the community colleges and uh, four-year programs to to make sure that students can graduate with um, you know a secondary degree. If they you know there's a couple different um, really cool programs. They real real emphasis on STEM learning and. Um, they built green schools, <laughs> they, you, know, you name it, they're doing it. Everything that you would look for, if you were, you know, if you were looking for a school system that was, in, that was doing the right things, they're doing them in Prince George's County. So I'm not minimizing the challenges that they've had. They've had huge challenges, and I'm not you know, defending every decision that was made. But when I look at that school system, I see consistent progress, and that's shown, among other things, in the fact that they're, you know, they went from, I think, 125,000 to 132,000 students. And that is, again, Baltimore's seen, you know, just continuous drops in student population. And I think that's a real testament to the work that has been done in Prince George's County. And and I also really respect the fact that, um, you know, talk about brave political decisions. First, you know, taking responsibility for, for working in the school system. But another was raising property taxes, which we sure, you know, that was – one of the things that he pushed, um, and it was solely to increase teacher salaries. It could only be used to increase teacher salaries. Um, you know, and what, what politician wants to raise property taxes? But, but he knew that he could not invest in the schools in the way that he needed to without doing it. So, um, you know, looking from, from outside and based, again, on my experience in Baltimore City, and I'm a graduate of the public school system and love it and have fantastic experiences, but, you know, as a system, it's had a lot of, a lot of challenges.
0: It has. Um, in any – look at the – you're in a an urban area, and you yep. listed many of the challenges that you face. And similarly, here in Montgomery County, when the, the council looked at you – know, we, we lacked funding for the public schools. There was a shortfall, and I guarantee you it was not Ike Leggett's priority to raise taxes. Um, and we had historically one of the highest property tax rate increases – Um, that Montgomery County has ever seen uh, 8.9%. And I mean, it, it, it hits you, but then you have to look at the, the other side of the equation is it goes into education and that should be the number one priority. And we can debate the funding models. We can talk a lot about that, but nonetheless, it has to go. The focus should remain back on what is the priority for Maryland schools And that's how Richard looks like he has differentiated himself, especially from Governor Hogan. You know, he's talked a lot about how Governor Hogan puts certain priorities on schools and his idea in terms of funding is going to be markedly different. And one issue, Elizabeth, that's in contention is Governor Hogan's executive order to start schools after Labor Day. And that has affected uh, that has really kind of affected how things have been done among the individual school systems. I'm a proponent of local control and our education yeah. system. What, what's good for Garrett County and for, um, for, for Worcester County is not always best for PG County or Montgomery or Frederick or maybe Kent. Um, and I just, I think the idea that an extra week of, um, you know, shopping on the ocean city boardwalk is not always conducive to, I mean, kids need to be back in school. I know our kids, look, it, yeah. come August 15th, we're like, when are you guys going back to school? Because uh, right. you can't stay around the house anymore. You have to go back <laughs> right. to school. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I say that in jest, but, but seriously, um, yeah. I think that that is a decision that Roshan has talked about, the moving the post-Labor Day schools, I, th- I believe fundamentally, Elizabeth, that school boards should have control over their school calendars.
1: Absolutely. It is from an educational perspective. It is indispensable. Um, it is it is the idea that you would you would de- decide by fiat what each school system should do in terms of their calendar. I it's just unbelievable. to I mean, it was not in the best interest of students or parents or teachers. And it right. You talked about some of the costs. I mean, they're parents who rely on the school system for childcare, and so it's you know extra time they have to pay for and find you know some way to keep their children cared for and occupied. It 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 in, impacts family vacation planning, summer planning, and also you know runs into um, problems, especially combined with this you know really aberrant weather we're having we've had this past mm. year. Um, you know how long school is going to run into the summer, and it just it it, is absolutely crazy to me that you wouldn't make that decision based on what is best for the school system and the people in it, you know, rather than what's best for ocean city retailers. I, I, it it still boggles my mind.
0: Another major issue is our infrastructure and how we get from point A to point B. And I'll give you a primary example. I live in North Potomac. I work in, Virginia and Northern Virginia, and I take the American Legion Bridge every day, across mm-hmm. to and from, and if you've traveled on the American Legion Bridge one or two times, there's it's, it's frustrating. It's, yeah. it's so frustrating. And you know, I, I drive all around the Beltway, and I, I try to take the back roads as much as possible. I go through Potomac to ultimately make my way down to the congested Beltway. And some mornings, I'm I'm usually on the road by 8 o'clock every day, and that's at the peak of traffic. So let's talk a little bit about um, the Baker Embry, the infrastructure plan. I'm, I'm interested to hear what can we do to, to fix 270? What can we do to mitigate our traffic flow? And do you support or does the, the ticket support plans like bus rapid transit? Do we support, uh, of course, upgrading our metro? Let's talk about that.
1: Sure, and we will be putting a transportation plan out in the next, I think, three weeks um, that will have much more detail. But, but just more generally, um, as we as his work in Prince George's has shown, he is a, he is committed to mass transit as the solution for for much of the state, but especially for the D.C. Um, the counties surrounding D.C. because you know we cannot keep building extra lanes and expect. <laughs> to solve the problem we have to have an effective mass transit system and it's what people want and it's best for quality of life it's best for the environment it's you know it's just it's better and baltimore city also and the baltimore region needs an effective um public transportation system but there's also parts other parts of the state um you know charles county one of the great ideas is building you know extending a light rail down from the branch avenue station yeah In the dc metro i mean there, there's there's opportunities for mass transit across the state um and there's also opportunities for, for better, smarter, yeah, rapid bus transit. Um, Even in, even, you know, not, I think those are the the big solutions, but there's also smaller solutions in rural counties that I, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's calling buses on demand, ride sharing, subsidized ride sharing. I mean, there's a, we, we need to be at the cutting edge of transportation in the state of Maryland. We should be, there's no, we're, we're not a, we're not a huge state and we're a state with, a lot of really smart, highly educated people who spend a lot of time thinking about systems and about transportation. So we should be, we should be a leader, and we're not. We're far behind other states because we haven't made the investments. And and Ho- Governor Hogan has certainly not. In the last four years, we've we've lost four years in investing in um, you know, in smart transportation systems that really are statewide plans instead of you know just money for limited projects in in counties that you know are politically. Helpful. So we really need a statewide plan that invests in getting people to and from work, um, but also we need to have transit-oriented development so that people, um, you know, so that we're building. We have a smart growth plan, you know, that that is supporting and building off of our transportation plan.
0: Governor Hogan has proposed to add uh, toll roads on uh, Interstate 270, much like they have over in Northern Virginia. And I don't know if you've seen lately, but some of the tolls can get up to forty dollars one way. Yeah. I, I saw that know,
1: article the other day. Yeah,
0: right. that's that's excessive. I I couldn't afford that. That's um, right. yeah, that's a lot of money out of, out of my pocket to travel up and down sixty six. Thankfully, I don't have to take sixty six into DC or to and from. But um, does does uh, county executive uh, banker would he support that concept or is he looking towards no. something? else okay
1: he is his goal is to invest in public transportation mass transit solutions not just adding and adding to our highway system another people there's there's no better solution for getting people to and from work quickly but we but and another thing i just want to add is ideally people can work close to their homes or from their homes if they if they choose and so maryland needs to be smarter and more aggressive in making sure that we are um supporting job growth you know, closer to home, so people don't aren't forced to travel so long to get to jobs in D.C. or Northern Virginia.
0: Have you had the opportunity in since being on the ticket? I'm sure you have. When you when you travel to Western Maryland, maybe you go up to, yeah. to Allegheny or Garrett, and then you head down onto the Eastern Shore to places like Talbot and Dorchester and Kent County and Worcester. It, it, you know, growing up in Western Maryland, I can tell you that. Uh, we there's a it's a little bit different from growing up in let's say Montgomery County or PG or Baltimore City or Baltimore my wife grew up in Reisterstown and um, yeah so what I can tell you is is that the values there are a bit different and you hear different needs and different concerns and many of the voters on uh, the eastern shore and in western Maryland They're culturally conservative and their values are are different. And that's, and that's fine. I mean, it's, it's a very dynamic, diverse state. Um, We, we have every, a little bit of everything for everyone, the four seasons. And it's really Maryland is representation of the United States as a whole, given our politics, you know, Western Maryland, is very conservative. Um, Down here in Montgomery and Prince George's in Baltimore city, we're, um, I, I would say we're much more progressive in our values. But when you're when you're on the shore, when you're up in Western Maryland, what are you hearing? What what are their concerns?
1: Well, it's so interesting. So there are common concerns that you hear in some form everywhere. For instance, the opiate epidemic, there's no piece of the state that hasn't been affected by that. In fact, Western Maryland has been hit particularly hard. Cecil County, I mean yeah. just nowhere nowhere has been spared. So the solutions or the specific needs vary county by county, region by region. Um, but the issues are the same. Education. There's no piece of the state that doesn't care deeply about education um, and supporting, you know, their local school system. Transportation various needs, but every that comes up in almost every county that I go to. Um, a need for better, smarter plans of transportation. Um, but that being said, you know, in running for governor and lieutenant governor, we need to be able to speak specifically the, to the needs and um, interests of every part of the state. And so it's why we spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of my time listening, going to jurisdictions and talking to people, whether they're advocates or, you know, have been involved in politics or, you know, been leaders in some fashion in the community and hearing from them what they care about, because I, I wouldn't ever pretend to go to Garrett County and tell them <laughs> what they need and don't need. It's, um, right. it's, it's listening and then thinking, how do we shape how, – how can we be helpful to those needs, whether it's rural broadband, whether it's, um, you know, expanding job offerings so that people aren't commuting so far, whether it's just supporting – I mean, Frederick, I was – so we're sure and I were in Frederick today, although we were there to run a half marathon, but we've been there um, a fair amount. And Frederick has done amazing things, and Jan Gardner, the county executive, is doing great things, leveraging all of the assets to build, you know, a local economy based on, you know, the the, the um, you know military base, but also the colleges and the really highly educated people who live there, so that people don't have to commute. You know, really strengthening great city. The county, it's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. And then revitalizing the downtown, um, their arts and cultural district is just booming. So um, it's it's learning about each jurisdiction and then figuring out how can the state be helpful, what are ways that the state can be helpful, how can we be a partner, and that's something that both talk about a lot. Is the state is a partner, um, and bringing the resources to support initiatives that are that are already thriving or coming in, you know, with ideas to work with local government to tackle the problem so and i'll tell you
0: where is is having grown up in the you know from the western maryland perspective and now living in montgomery county uh the criticism of i I would say as a governor as a whole but i would say Mm -hmm. more so directed at former governor martin o'malley is that they only saw the governor when it was a photo op and he would come up and see you know had you know would have a meeting there and western marylanders truly felt like the governor o'malley that is and some of the other governors um had forgotten about them that they just were, were kind of in the backdrop and where western marylanders now believe they've seen governor hogan a lot more come up and visit there and it may just be a um they've because they've seen him they've talked to him he's been hands-on he's gone to these counties um that concerns western Marylanders and and even people from the eastern shore it's just that they don't see their governor whether it's a Republican or Democrat now um I've heard that uh they've they've seen Larry Hogan a lot more in in many of these counties but I will say that that's a primary concern that is a real concern but I see that From from what I'm hearing, you you mentioned the opioid crisis. It's a national crisis, and it's affecting communities. Take a look at the city of Cumberland. They have a major problem, the city of Hagerstown. And so that's one of those unifying issues that no matter who's in leadership in Maryland, um, and I think everybody's on board, we've got to fix this. It's taking – every day I, I look at my hometown newspaper, and every day I see a young person's name and face and that is to me is devastating. And usually when when I see that obituary, it's because of opioids, because you look yeah. at the very bottom of the obituary and there's a certain charity that rings true to combat opioid addiction. And there's a new place in Hagerstown that's being built. It's called Brooks House, Elizabeth. And oh, yeah. Of...
1: Yes. OK, so, so please, say more. Yes. No.
0: Yeah, a good friend of mine, is his name is Kevin Simmers. He's a former Hagerstown City police uh, officer. And uh, a few years ago, his daughter sadly overdosed and passed away um, on opioids. And so they are putting together a treatment facility to help women um, in Washington County to combat the opioid addiction. And I know that that is such a – it transcends all – Political parties, it transcends any political divide. it is just such an important issue that we're all going to need to tackle together. So tell me a little bit about what's your priority there how How can we work on this as the state and at the federal level?
1: Yeah, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about and working on this issue in the attorney general's office because um, in in that office as an office, we tackled a few different pieces. One piece was going after manufacturers, distributors, you know, looking at trying to just stem the flow of prescription opiates into Maryland and, and working with other States on that issue. Um, another in the criminal division, we focused in Maryland on going after, you know, the term is pill mills, but facilities that were essentially, you know, just selling for cash prescriptions for, um, for Oxycontin and other, you know, heavy duty opioids. And because one of the, one of the, it's, addiction is addiction is so crippling and so intense that once someone is addicted, the odds of um, you know permanent recovery are not are just not high enough. Which I'll get to in a second how we could work to make that better. But but so it's so valuable to, to try to stop people from becoming addicted in the first place. And one of the things that you can do is stop the flow of prescription opiates, which you know. If you, the book that I always recommend is Dreamland by Sam Quinones, which really chronicles hmm. the rise of prescription abuse in this country. But, you know, there's been lots written about it. Um, so, so what can the state do alone, working with other states, working with the federal government to stop people becoming addicted to prescription opioids? That's thing one. We're I think doing a lot, we can do more. Number two is effective treatment. And this um, is, in my view, still somewhat passive. In terms of, you know, they regulate, they approve, but there's not a statewide plan that says, you know, Garrett County does not have a sufficient, you know, does not have inpatient, sufficient inpatient beds and Kent County, you know, doesn't have any doctor who is prescribing buprenorphine or, you know, thinking statewide, what are the needs? Are we matching resources with needs Um, and being proactive about creating a network? that serves the state. And also part of it, and I hate to say this because there's so much money now in, in treatment. There's a lot of, you know, these a lot of unsavory organizations trying to cash in. And so the state also has to protect people from, you know, treatment providers that are not providing quality treatment. So we have to uphold quality standards so that, you know, these families and addicts who are, you know, so desperate for treatment are actually getting, you know, if they're spending the money and, you know, finally committing to treatment that it's real, real quality treatment. So I think that's an important role for the state. And another role is um, making sure, and, and I think there's been so much good work done on this, but making sure that everybody who needs it has Narcan, you know, the ability to save someone from overdosing if yeah. they encounter them. Yeah. And Baltimore City has been, I mean, but so, so, so many people, but I, um, you know, the health commissioner's made it a real priority in Baltimore to train as many people as possible and provide Narcan. But, but the state needs to fight to, you know, keep prices down because the, you know, the manufacturer of Narcan has been, you know, significantly increased the prices um, at the time that demand has been so high. So, you know, I think there's a lot of roles for the state, but one of the critical ones, as I mentioned, is making sure we have an effective statewide treatment plan that's responsive to the needs of every locality in the state. And I just think we're very far from where we need to be on that.
0: Uh, I appreciate hearing uh, your perspective on that. And, you know, Elizabeth, looking at these, looking at the race as is and just wrapping up, it's, you know, you, yep. you're facing off some, uh, against some formidable contenders and a um, well, lot of experience running in the Democratic primary. It's where the energy is. Um, and, I, you know, I think people are focusing much less on. Governor Hogan's – well, he doesn't really have – he don't think he has a primary. I think he's the only one, and he'll move into election. But, you know, as Democrats around the state of Maryland, they're making up their minds on whom to support, which ticket, and which best meets their interests. What's your strategy? What is the – you know, what's the hook for the Baker-Embry ticket, and what are you telling Democrats? What's, you know, versus another candidate, and how do you draw in their support?
1: One is, right, what I talked about before, that Richard has the leadership experience. And leadership in crisis, which is so critical for Maryland right now, um, but it's also we have to we have to counter the narrative which you referred to that that campaigns in the past haven't looked at all of Maryland; they've been focused on just sort of the heavy heavy turnout Democratic counties, and so we have to have statewide effort and you know we've shown that we've been in every part of the state we're going to be involved and supportive in the general of you know democratic races all the way down the ticket because the party has to unite in order to win in november so you know based on because of who he is because of his the work he's done for so many years in public office and public service he has the relationships necessary um win in november to support the democratic party and lead the democratic party because in fact the you know the democratic nominee becomes the the leader of the democratic party in maryland right after the primary and so he has um you know as you can see by the endorsements he's racked up from we'll have a we'll have another set of endorsements on may 10th from um you know uh, elected officials across the state we just need to keep 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 reminding people that that our campaign is is for the entire state of Maryland and 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 focused on you know raising raising the quality of life and raising um, the responsiveness and partnership for everyone in the state.
0: Well, I think it helps having a a fantastic lieutenant governor on the ticket. Oh. So <laughs> I, I think that helps, and you having the Baltimore City. Experience have, you know, you or Baltimore, true and true, you understand their issues. That is, it's such an important hub of progress that we have to, uh, to focus on the city, but also respecting that you're going to be, you know, uh, the governor can't be everywhere, but understanding right. the needs and priorities of every community in Maryland and not neglecting portions of Maryland that might not be politically, um, I would say, you know, politically supportive, nonetheless, but still recognizing that you're going to be there, you're going to show up and you're going to, you're going to right. tackle these, these tough issues and provide, you know, providing that Maryland continues to have a record of having some of the best public schools in the country. So, yes. um, we need to be number to be one.
1: A- There's no excuse <laughs> to be anything else.
0: Well, we I really appreciate yeah. your perspective, and I sincerely appreciate this conversation. I always love to talk policy and to get, really get into the nitty gritty. And we talked about a few issues on the surface, but I know in the future, um, I'm, I, yeah. I hope that you'll come back and we'll we'll dive into some of the other issues and talk about economic growth and some business development and about the Chesapeake Bay and some environmental issues um, as well as affordable housing. Um, these are And and a big one, my my most favorite one, Elizabeth, is talking about criminal justice reform. And I think that's so important. um, I can't
1: wait. And please don't hesitate to get in touch with me anytime Maddie can give you all the information or I can send it to you. be happy to talk at any time.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And so, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and and Rashurn And I look forward to seeing you on the campaign trail. Thanks for coming on tonight.
1: Terrific. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care. Have a great week. Good night. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was Elizabeth Emery, who is the lieutenant governor to Roucher and Baker. They are running uh, for the Democratic nomination. The election is June 26th, and everybody has that etched in their minds if they're following Maryland politics. June 26th is the election. I think early voting begins on uh, June 14th. I early vote, it's easy. Go down to the Potomac Community Center, wait in line a little bit, and that's what we did in the presidential election. Um, in fact, I think I remember I early voted in the presidential election the day that the Comey story came out about how they were reopening Hillary Clinton's emails um, investigation about the Anthony Weiner stuff. So I went down and I said, "All right, I got to get this out of the way. I can't. I, I just can't do this." And I always like the tradition of going to the polls on election day. I don't know. There's just something about it, but I've never missed an election since I was 18 years old, whether it was in person or absentee voted. It's so important. And these conversations with gubernatorial candidates, with their running mates, with state candidates, with local, down to the school board, down to the clerk of courts, uh, it, it these are important. And that's why I do it. I enjoy it. I love having these types of conversations and get into the policy and not necessarily the politics, but I like talking about real issues. So with that next week, I have Danielle Mateev. She is running for an at-large seat on Montgomery County's County Council. She's going to come on the show at nine o'clock and we're going to talk all about Montgomery County politics. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Have a great week, everyone. And thank you as always. And you can read me at a minor detail. Dot com I am here every Sunday night at nine o'clock p.m on a minor detail radio have a great week everyone